Coming up this hour, we're going to talk coronavirus statistics, and then author and speaker Sky Jatani is going to join us. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, remember, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online, 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, Ian, I always, ever since we started this show, I say alongside Ian Simpkins, but we have not been alongside each other since March. So it's more like a, uh, you know, like a symbolic alongside, I suppose. I think alongside can also encompass the symbolic meaning. Yeah, I think that's still appropriate. All right. Then I'm going with it all day today. All day. Well, it is uh, another hot. It is another hot and steamy day today, uh, as it will be for much of the time. But we are glad that you are joining us. And we're looking forward to our time today. We're going to be joined later this hour by author and speaker Sky Jatani. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. Yeah. He's going to stick around for <clears throat> the better part of a half hour. So we're looking forward to talking to yeah, Sky. He's great. He's great. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, something we've been talking about, obviously, since before even the middle of March, most of this year now, it feels like, uh, <laughs> is the coronavirus. The what? The coronavirus. You heard of it. Sometimes it goes by its nickname, COVID-19. It's and, nickname. Uh, <laughs> like a teacher's taking roll call in, an, in a fifth grade classroom. Uh, coronavirus. Do you go by coronavirus or do you go by COVID? Uh, call me COVID. <laughs> you got it. It's exactly how this plays out. I do feel like in the beginning, everyone called it coronavirus and now it's only been COVID. I, I don't know where the, the switch came, but. Because we've gotten um, easier with our pronunciation. There you go. There you go. So uh, as has been the case for the last week or two, uh, and just trying to make sense of all of the statistics that are out there. Uh, Dr. Fauci said, I'm reading from a CNN, art- a CNN article, that, US, that the U.S. is still, quote, knee deep in the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic. So this isn't the second wave, he's saying. It's a we're still in the first wave. And uh, this is more of a surge. And specifically, uh, places like California, Florida, Texas, Arizona, uh, are really seeing some scary increases in their numbers. Uh, while at the same time, here in Illinois, uh, it is uh, things are going down right now in a good way. It says Illinois with 614 new cases and six deaths on Monday, uh, which is uh, is an improvement, and it continues to get better. And it says Illinois is responsible for less than 2% of the new cases of COVID-19 nationwide between t- June 28th and July 5th, whereas Arizona, California, Florida, and Texas alone are responsible for more than 52% of the new cases. So lots of numbers, and you get inundated with these graphs of cases going up, but deaths going down. I'm wondering, Ian, I just want to start here uh, how are you processing all of the information that comes our way? Like, are you uh, are you scared by what's going on or do you feel hopeful because Illinois is going well? How are you processing all of these numbers flying at us? I'm just mostly wondering, is is knee deep the official medical terminology? That's that's how <laughs> does that strike anyone else as weird? Like, uh, what are what are the current cases? Our knee deep. Who whose knees? <laughs> Who does it depend on the length of your legs? How do we? How do we? I don't know. That's always that part's always strange to me. I expected you to go. <laughs> well, we're, we're talking about like really specific numbers and trends and graphs. So for someone like ah, 
knee deep. Like, knee deep. <laughs> yeah, uh, a bushel, a bushel in a basket of uh, what? What do we? And we have figures for this. So yeah, I don't know. We, I mean, we've talked even off air how a number of friends <laughs> almost sometimes it seems like. Do you ever get the sense that sometimes people are posting? They're almost like spite graphs. Like they're posting graphs in direct opposition to what another friend posted earlier in the day on Facebook. Like we're almost 100%. using information yeah. as like these, these one ups like, yeah, well, here's what I read earlier today. And here's what this source says, which I guess is sort of social media anyway. Right. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that general demeanor, but uh, it is pretty strange how, how controversial even some of these statistics have been. But your question was more about fear I don't. I don't really feel fear necessarily in the classic sense. There's caution, right? I've certainly been. I have a thing, a hand sanitizer in my car. I have a mask on me at all times. Like there's, you know, I'm making. I'm taking precautions, uh, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that for me. It's reached any part, any point of like spiraling. Although I have certainly talked with people who have seen things far more intense than I've seen at this point that are, really? yeah, gripped by fear and really concerned and. Some go, you know, of course, right to the eschatological is just the end of the world. And other people seem uh, convinced of a number of conspiracies and everything in between. So I think by and large, we're navigating it. Average was the score I would give our, our family, maybe a, a B plus. Okay. You're, you're knee deep in uh, wading through the waters. And yeah, sure. Uh, it is. Yeah, I totally uh, do understand that. You, this will not surprise you that t- earlier today over Zoom, I had a, uh, we will call a passionate conversation with somebody about masks. So that probably will not surprise you. <laughs> and does not and, surprise uh, me. It is just interesting. It continues to be interesting, like you said, how graphs and masks and other things are such political hotspots. But there's this other article that we were looking at out of NBC News that talks about uh, how Chattanooga, Tennessee became a coronavirus hotspot. And just the sentence underneath it is amazing. It says, the city reopened quickly. Many have no regard for masks and distancing. And contact tracers have begun to lose threads on possible infections. And it goes on to tell the stories of some things going on in Chattanooga. But I would say, when we talk about caution and worry, I would say that uh, while I'm excited about how well Illinois is doing, I am a little cautious and a little bit concern that once things as things get more lax and more open uh that we won't uh reopen have reopened too quickly or have no regard for masks and distancing because this is a really sad story if you go and read it we've got it up on our facebook page where this area uh specific area opened really quickly with no real distancing and masks and it's gotten crazy there and just an outbreak not the greater chattanooga city but some of the outskirts And I do think it is a reminder to us again, not that we need to necessarily be reminded, but it's still a dangerous virus out there that we really still need to take seriously. Yeah. Our program director, Marcus Brown, posted this yesterday, said the uh, seven day rolling average for COVID deaths has dropped to 480. That's the lowest number since late March. This is one month after positive case numbers began to rise. CDC estimates uh, estimates the mean time between symptom onset and death is 14 days. We're double that now. New cases aren't turning into fatalities, like like you were saying. This is good news. CDC will soon declare that COVID is no longer an epidemic. Um, I'm curious what you think that type of news will do in the areas where some are saying they've become new hotspots. Like, will this create a further divide in those cities? Will there be greater caution shown or same trajectory in your mind? 
I think it's same trajectory. I think one thing that we've sadly learned nationwide, quite frankly, uh, is that people who believe this is a big deal will continue to believe it's a big deal. People who uh, think that things are in the right trajectory and are being way oversold uh, will continue to believe that, that you use the word divide. I think that divide is going to remain. But like when I read Marcus's uh, his charts, I get really excited. I'm like, great, awesome. And then the next tweet you see with a different chart, you're like, oh, we're doomed. And you just kind of go back and forth. Um, but I would, you know, sound like a broken record, but I feel like we're doing our public service to just keep telling people, keep wearing your masks, keep distancing, keep doing your part for yourself, your family, but also for your neighbor. And, uh, I, you know, that is still important. This is still a dangerous virus out there that is not gone and is, uh, not showing like it's going to be gone anytime soon. Yeah. That's a good word, man. Well, coming up next, Sky Jatani, somebody that we've referenced a lot on this show. He is an author, a speaker, author of a new book called What If Jesus Was Serious, also the co-host of the Holy Post podcast. We've been excited to have this conversation for a while. Sky, uh, Sky Jatani is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, We are glad to have you with us. Uh, One of our favorite things about doing this show, Ian and I talk about this often, is the people we get to meet and have on the show. Uh, And with that in mind, uh, we are really excited to be joined by author, speaker, and pastor Sky Jatani. Sky, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience in any way that you see fit? Uh, I, I think you did a pretty good job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am an author and a speaker and a pastor and um, the co-host of the Holy Post podcast. I've written seven or eight books now. I used to be an editor and executive at Christianity Today, but now I work at home like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> You do have a sort of like Ed Stetzer level hustle. I don't know how you do all the things that you do. You have a uh, a a proclamation or curation, rethinking sermons in a digital age webcast thing tomorrow. I'm going to ask you about later. But you have a book that just came out, and uh, it's really asking the question: What if Jesus was actually serious? Can you tell us a little bit more about that book? Yeah, it's a it's an exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, and it really came out of a class I taught years and years ago at my church on the Sermon on the Mount. The very first day of that class, we read through the sermon, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then I asked the class, which was probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 adults, like, how many of you think Jesus was serious? How many of you think he actually expected us to do the things he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount? And I was kind of shocked when nobody raised their hand. Hmm. And it turned into an hour-long discussion, basically, of all these lifelong church-going Christians telling me why we don't actually have to do what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And mm-hmm. it, it that stuck with me for the last 15 years, probably. Finally did a series in my daily devotional on, on the Sermon on the Mount, and now I've turned that into this little book that includes short readings throughout the sermon, and then all these doodles, these little illustrations that I've made kind of illustrate the points. I'm wondering, where do you think that comes from? People who've been raised in the church and have been in the church going, ah, Jesus really wasn't serious, doesn't expect us to do what he said. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, gosh, I think it comes from numerous sources. But one of the biggest ones is the fact that we've separated in our theology being saved from being a disciple. 
meaning uh, my eternal security is set. I'm, you know, where I die, when I die, I know where I'm going. That's all good. But actually following Jesus, that's something I don't have to worry about. That's one source of it. But I think actually the more important source is that our basic vision of the world is one of a dangerous and threatening place. And if that's how you see the world, then the teachings of Jesus really make no sense whatsoever. I mean, why on earth would I love my enemy or forgive the person who's wronged me or give to the one who asks of me if I think I'm going to be killed or taken advantage of or abused for living that way? And there's a lot of rhetoric in the Christian subculture, particularly in America, that is driven to make us more and more and more afraid. And when you're afraid, the teachings of Jesus make no sense at all. So I think it comes down to the fundamental vision a lot of American Christians have of the world is simply not the vision of the world that Jesus holds. Hmm. And therefore, we see his teachings as utterly ridiculous or um, impractical. Right. Impractical, I think, is a really important word there, too, because like one of the things you're one of my favorite people to follow on social media. You got a great Twitter presence. I actually subscribe to With God Daily. If you want to learn more, withgoddaily.com is where you need to head for that. One of the things that strikes me about your presence online is that it's not actually easily identifiable which political camp you land in, which theological camp you land in. Like you tend to like stir up both sides and encourage both sides, which to me feels that feels Christ-like. Like, yes, there's going to be times where I'm more this or I'm more that. And one of the things Brian and I talk a lot on the show about is how we just seem to be more perpetually divided, especially in this digital age. I'm wondering, how do you manage to say the types of things that you say in a way that's winsome, that's captivating, that helps people actually stop from doom scrolling and thinking about you know, what it is that you're proposing? Well, thank you. I appreciate that feedback because that's it's very encouraging to me. But I think two things come to mind right away. Number one, I think one of the reasons I'm able to avoid getting pigeonholed, frankly, is because of my independence. Mm-hmm. I I have been really grateful to have um, a ministry structure where, although I'm accountable, I'm ordained, and I and I have authority structures above me. Uh, for the most part, I I'm not accountable to a, a big donor or mm-hmm. a even a congregation where I have to worry about if I say something that stirs up the pot a little bit, it's going to, you know, 40% of my congregation is going to leave. Right. And I think there's a lot of Christian leaders out there who are beholden to their sheep and their mm-hmm. opinions and their donations and all that. And, and that limits their ability to truly disciple them in the way of Jesus because it has to conform to their cultural or political expectations. Right. That's number one. But then the second reason I think I'm able to do that more is because early on, I made a commitment that whatever ministry I'm going to be a part of or whatever I'm going to try to do, I, I don't believe it is godly or consistent with the kingdom of God to build that platform based on fear. Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of American evangelicalism has done that, whether it's mm-hmm. political or cultural or just simply ministerial. The easiest way to gain an audience in today's culture is to make people afraid and tell them who's to blame. Mm. And that is pandemic in Christianity right now and in our culture. And so we shouldn't be surprised when one of the core ethics of American Christianity is safety, right? We always want to be safe. We want to, we want our families to be safe. We want our churches to be safe. We want everything to be safe all the time because we're terrified. Mm. Or if you see why we mobilize in certain political directions, it's because those people or that person or that group is the enemy that's out to get us. Mm. And 
when you live that way and you see the world that way, you can't love, you can't mm. sacrifice, you can't show grace and compassion because fear drives us totally away from those qualities of God, his kingdom and his spirit. Right. So I've tried to avoid that imperfectly, but I've tried to avoid that. And, and, and ironically, I think I get in some trouble for not relying on fear more because <laughs> people want me to. Right. And they're like, why aren't you more upset about this? Or why aren't you more angry about that? And it's like, well, I'm not going to play that game. Right. Scott, how would you, 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 you come in contact with a lot of people, but apart from social media, how would you assess the church, the American church? And where is it that you, uh, you find hope for the future of the church? Wow. That's a big question. And it's a really good question. Um, you know, that it's hard to answer that without speaking in generalities, which aren't yeah. fair. Um, I, this is going to upset some people, I think, but okay, <laughs> I guess I should practice what I preached. Right? <laughs> um, honestly, I find the most hope for the American church in, uh, in, in communities of color. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and particularly in the African-American church right now but also in the Latino church, the Asian immigrant church, um, when you look statistically about which group of Christians read the Bible the most, pray the most, have the most orthodox theology, the most biblical ethics, who have the highest vision or authority of the word of God, overwhelmingly it's African-Americans. And when you look at which group is most likely to have heretical views, to not take the Bible seriously, to not read their Bible often, to not attend church often, those all rank highest among Anglo-Americans. Wow. So when I look at the church and the future of it, I think it's in the minority groups, in the immigrant groups, and in the African-American community where there is the most growth and mm-hmm. vitality for the future of this country. And it, it bears out even when you look within denominations, like, if it weren't for the Latino community, the Southern Baptist Convention would be in free fall, hmm. right? But it's, it's Latino immigrants and their children and descendants who are helping that thing stay alive. Hmm. So that's where I find a lot of vitality and hope. Um, and I, I mean, I could tell you some other stories, but I think the other side of it is there's a lot of white leadership in American Christianity that has obviously been in power for generations that are leading legacy institutions and i think some of them are so afraid of Mm. losing cultural significance and institutional power that that fear has driven them to not make uh bold even missiological decisions for the future in Mm. other words they're they're too passive and conservative in their leadership i mean that conservative in the true sense not in a political sense but like careful Mm. right cautious in their leadership and it means that they're not really making inroads into the culture the way that some of these uh, marginalized groups are, because frankly, they have less to lose. Right. So they're willing to take those risks and, and really have a, a greater faith in God. And I think a lot of that has been stagnant in the white church for a long time. Mm. Well, that other voice you hear is uh, Sky Jatani. He is uh, the author of a new book called uh, What If Jesus Was Serious, a collection of daily devotionals, and also a co-host of the Holy Post podcast. And we are thrilled that Sky is going to stick around and join us for another segment here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we are uh, really excited to be jo- joined again by Sky Jatani. Sky is 
the author of a new devotional book called What If Jesus Was Serious, also the co-host of the Holy Post podcast. Guy, we're grateful for you sticking around. I want to ask you about your podcast. Uh, you uh, hosted along with Phil Vischer of uh, VeggieTales fame and all sorts of other uh, works he's done. Uh, what can people expect when they listen to the Holy Post podcast? <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> um, what can they expect? Well, they can expect, hopefully, thoughtful, insightful commentary about news and culture and theology with usually a wonderful guest that we interview for at least half of every show. But mixed into that is going to be a fair amount of irreverence and humor. <laughs> and probably the best way to illustrate that is Phil likes to do this reoccurring segment called News of the Butt, <laughs> which is some news item that he has found that in some way relates to posteriors. And it's, <laughs> it, it, it has no theological or, or cultural value pretty much it's just an oddity that he likes to throw in there but that's kind of how the show rolls i mean we get that's into funny. some weird tangents and have a lot of fun and laughter um while being deep the so one way i try to think about it is we take we take jesus very seriously but we never take ourselves seriously mm. oh that's good that's see we take some cues from you guys too by the way because we at the first event brian and i ever did somebody came up to us and they said are you the laughing pastors and I was like, I, I mean, I we'll guess we are. They're like, it's so refreshing to hear Christians laugh. And I do. I mean that seriously, though. Your show is so fun and so deep. It's a very unique blend of the two. And I, I just don't see a lot of people doing that. I want to shift gears selfishly for a second because you're, you're doing this webinar with Barna on preaching. And I love the title, Proclamation or Curation, Rethinking Sermons in a Digital Age. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what that's all about? Yeah, um, that's a big topic. I've actually been working on it all day, putting the content together so it's fresh in my mind. Nice. Um, essentially, w what I'm setting out here is that preaching and the sermon has been central to Protestant worship, at least, for the last 500 years hmm. since the Reformation. And when you look at what gave rise to the sermon-centric model, it was a combination of technology with the rise of the printing press, a cultural transformation with the enlightenment coming along where knowledge became central rather than just experience. And we've been in that mode for 500 years. And I think probably for the last 20 years, we've been slowly slipping into a different uh, environment for the same two reasons, technology and culture. We've seen the rise of the internet and digital technology and our culture is dramatically changing. And so what I'm trying to think through is, um, is, is making the sermon the central act of our Christian lives every week and our gathering and is preparing a sermon, the central responsibility of a pastor, is that still the best use of our time and resources for making mm. disciples? Mm. And that doesn't mean I don't think Bible teaching is important. It's critical. It has to be a component, but what's the best way to do it? And with the tools available to us now, what new options are available for making sure that people are engaging the Bible in a deep and meaningful way? And therefore, What's the best use of our time when we do gather together as an incarnate community? And is it best spent in a passive lecture listening to somebody talk for 30 or 40 minutes? Right. And I think all, all the evidence is overwhelming that a sermon-centric model, while it's deeply part of our tradition, is actually a terrible way to make disciples. Mm. And the biggest obstacle to changing it is not the people, it's the pastor's. Because we are so addicted to that model, and it's so, frankly, ego-satisfying for us 
Mm. that it's really hard to break away from it. And yet I think we need to, and this pandemic with COVID and all the streaming online stuff, it may be forcing us in that direction against our will, mm. but it's, it's up to us whether or not we're really going to put the mission of the gospel first and the formation of our people first, or the traditions that we've inherited and the models that are most satisfying for us as leaders. Wow. You touched on the pandemic. I want to go there as well with this COVID-19 pandemic. How else do you see all that we've been through over the last couple of months changing the church? Uh, maybe uh, ways we're going to be forced to change, but other ways maybe you hope that will change coming out of this pandemic. Oh, goodness. Um, that's a great question. Well, I think it's going to accelerate the exodus of nominal Christians from church involvement. We've been mm -hmm. seeing that for the last few decades. Um, you know, it used to be a cultural expectation that people went to church on Sunday, and that's fallen away in the last 20, 30 years. So it's more and more, if, it's only if you're really a committed Christian that you're likely to be involved in your church. And I think without having a physical place to go to and maybe just tuning in online, it's accelerating the number of people who are dropping out, hmm. which you might see as a bad thing for the institution, but ultimately it's probably a good thing for the gospel because we can more clearly see who's really committed to Jesus and who isn't. But secondly, um, I think in a good way, what it hopefully will force us to do, going back to the sermon thing, is it forces those of us who are church leaders to genuinely ask, how do we faithfully make disciples of Jesus in today's environment without just blindly uh, reproducing the models of prior generations? In other words, how do I make disciples if I don't have a building? Right. And how do I make disciples if they're not going to come and gather to hear me lecture for 40 minutes? <laughs> and how do I make disciples if I can't afford because of the economic downturn to pay for a staff of X number of people, or I can't even get a salary myself? How am I going to make disciples? Like the mission doesn't change. The calling doesn't change, mm. but the tools and environment change. And I think we've been so reluctant to faithfully re-examine those traditions that we've inherited that we haven't, frankly, the statistics bear this out. We have not been making disciples well. Right. And, and I think the pandemic puts everything on the table for us and forces us to ask the question, okay, once this is over, what pieces do we not want to put back in place? Right. Right. Do we, do we really believe that every pastor needs to have a full-time salary in order to do their work and calling? Do we really believe that the church is supposed to just be this ever-growing set of programs that people engage in within a building. Hmm. Um, do we really believe that Sunday morning gatherings are primarily for the preaching and teaching of the word and not for community engagement with one another or the table or some other expression of faith? Like, like All that should be on the table. And I'm not here to tell you what the right answers are. I just, I find great satisfaction when there are faithful leaders who are willing to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. That's and that's cool. what the pandemic is forcing us to do. Yeah, that's so good. Scott, we only got like a couple of minutes left and such a short amount of time together at all. But one of the things I like to ask guests is who are you reading or listening to? What are the accounts that you would encourage people to go follow, even film or podcast? I just I want to help give people sort of some next steps or other places maybe to even go to learn more of what's kind of shaping and forming you a little bit right now. Oh, gosh. That's a lot to, to respond to. A couple of things come to mind right away. When it comes to like public policy and politics, I have just really appreciated the writings of David French. Yes. Uh, you know, he's a conservative Republican uh, attorney, evangelical, and yet his writings on things like Trump 
the left, uh, abortion, you can go down the list. I just find him to be a refreshing principled voice in all of that. So that's one I'd recommend. I'm reading a really interesting book right now by uh, Jim Wilder, who is a close friend of Dallas Willard. The book is called Renovated. Mm. And he refers to himself as a, um, a neurotheologian. Mm. which was a, a new term for me, but I'm really enjoying this book. It's basically the inner intersection of theology and brain science. Love it. And he talks about basically why knowledge alone does not tend to transform our lives. Wow. And this is, a, this is you know, deeply unsettling for people who bought into a, a, a reformed, enlightenment, modernist kind of view of spirituality that says the more you learn theology or the more Bible you memorize, the more your life and behaviors will be changed. The evidence says, that's not the case. Right. And he talks about why and what then do we know, both from scripture and from brain science, about how transformation really happens. That's been really, really good. Wow. Hmm. Um, gosh, what else would, would I recommend? Uh, I, I mean, I'm doing that seminar with Barna tomorrow, and I think that the research and data that David Kinneman and the team at Barna has been putting out on both millennials and Gen Z and more recently on race has been fantastic mm. um their their stuff is just really really useful um i don't know what other areas you want me to touch on but that's those are some that that's come good. to mind yeah. <laughs> that's <are> good <laughs> hey you've been listening to sky jitani he is the co-host of the holy post podcast author of a new book called what if jesus was serious guy thank you so much this was really fun for us we really appreciate you taking the time today yeah, thanks man anytime anytime i love it thanks absolutely you're listening to the common good on am 1160 welcome back to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. thanks for joining us i want to talk about something that chris cuomo said on cnn the other night but before we do that uh, Ian is going to talk to us a little bit about Thrivent. I would love to. Thrivent.com is a great place to mosey on over to right now. I've been a Thrivent member for eight years. They're a wonderful Fortune 500 on for profit that's been doing this for more than a century, which I mean, I think that's a big deal. But uh, a couple of things you should also know Thrivent.com slash careers is a good place to go. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change or you recently were out of work, you don't have to have any background in finance whatsoever. You just got to love coming alongside people helping people, being a part of a really great team. And they've been providing a whole bunch of really uh, wonderful free resources from like story times for kids to how to lead during a crisis to how to homeschool in a pandemic. So I would highly encourage you to go and like their Facebook page, head over to Thrivent.com or Thrivent.com slash careers. So the other night, I believe it says it was Friday night, Chris Cuomo on his CNN show, Cuomo Primetime, uh, he was talking about our nation and finding healing in our nation from both the pandemic uh, and the injustice and all that's all that's going on nationally. And I want you to hear what he said. It's a 13 second clip that's getting a lot of uh, discussion. Here's what Chris Cuomo said. And you remember, if you believe in one another and if you do the right thing for yourself and your community, things will get better in this country. You don't need help from above. It's within us. All right, Ian, this is blown up around Twitter. Uh, people definitely have thoughts on what Chris Cuomo said here. I have been curious since I heard it. What does Ian Simpkins think about Chris Cuomo, what he said here? Uh, all right. Well, let me start by saying what you probably won't expect me to say. Is that a, is okay. that a fair way to start? I'm excited. Um, I think there is some truth to the within us part that he said. Mm -hmm. I also 
would agree that I don't think we need to look for help from above because God is, is not above. That's not that's not where he resides. It's not like heaven is upward. And so looking upward is where we need our help. Now, the more maybe obvious, if you've listened to the show, I think he misses the mark in a lot of ways. But the within us part for me is like, if we are temples of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is guiding, leading, directing, healing, regenerating, restoring us, there, I mean, there honestly is some truth to that, even though I know that's really not what he's going at. But I, and this really probably wasn't your point, so I'll try not to, you know, diverge too much. But there is something, though, that I think can be problematic when we perpetuate the idea that God is up there somewhere. I mean, we see it in mm-hmm. movies. We see it in church gatherings. We p- literally will point like, hey, send up a prayer to the big guy upstairs. He's not upstairs. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's residing. The Holy Spirit is moving. Like this idea that God is distant and far and up and not like present and near and close to me leads to all sorts of other really problematic implications. And a lot of those I think we've seen play out, particularly here in the West, because God is distant and far. And so we're kind of left our own devices down here. But uh, yeah, that's not what he was getting at, as best I can tell. Mm-hmm. So I could see why. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> really, really jumped on him here on Twitter. And people were asking some good questions like, okay, so then how do we know what the, quote, right thing is? You know, how what what's our standard of moral judgment? How, what's our true north? How do you, you know, those are, again, age-old debates between, you know, people of faith and people who take issues with faith. But um I'm not surprised that this blew up, that it's become the firestorm that it is. I don't, I'd love to know what your kind of initial response. I mean, literally before we went live, you were like, ooh, I can't wait to hear what <laughs> Ian Simpkins is going to say about this. Like you were just waiting for me to put my foot in my mouth or something, which maybe I did. But- no, not that. It's, it's not that oftentimes when we get into a subject, I feel like you and I have done this long enough that I have a good feel for the direction you're going to go. Yeah. And I wasn't totally sure in this one. So, Oh, interesting. Uh, now, Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo has gone down this road before when a conversation around thoughts and prayers on his show, uh, he had a similar thing here. And his brother, uh, ironically, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, uh, was recently quoted as talking about the numbers of COVID cases coming down, that God didn't do this. We did this. Uh, So people are kind of uh, seeing a little bit of a pattern here. But, you know, when I saw this and the reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit is, uh, obviously I believe that we need an intervention of God, like turning to him in prayer. Like this is paramount. It is important. At the same time, I do believe that sometimes we use that as a crutch to not act. <laughs> like hmm. I do think that sometimes there are certain things, uh, that God has, um, given us, you know, common sense or made clear, like, no, this is the right thing to do. This is the loving thing to do. Uh, and so sometimes you hear people say things like, oh, you know, I'm just going to wait till God shows me what to do. And you want to be, uh, I feel like that's already out there. I think the love your neighbor or whatever else sure. is already out there. Um, and so I wouldn't go to, you don't need help from above. Like you said, I wouldn't go there. I do think, um, as a Christ follower, I believe that ultimately our hope is in God's transformation in the lives of individuals uh, and in the lives of our culture. Uh, but I do think we could go too far the other way. Like, well, I'm just going to sit back and wait till God does some miraculous thing. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't know. What am I going to do when really he's given us a mind and he's given us the abilities to kind of go at things. And so I don't think he's categorically wrong. I do think the dismissiveness of prayer is wrong here, yeah. in my opinion. Um, 
But there is something to be said about uh, it's also not helpful to just go, well, throw my hands up and go, nothing we can do. God's going to need to step in and, and do everything because that's also, I think, problematic. Yeah, you made me think of two quotes. One, I'm going to butcher. I think it's from Galileo. And he said something like, I don't feel inclined to believe that the God that gave us minds and reason would would demand that we forego its use. Essentially saying, mm-hmm. like what you were yeah. saying, you, ha- you have a brain and we there's a lot to scripture that isn't clear. I think loving your neighbors is pretty clear. Um, but I actually came across this Frederick Douglass quote earlier this morning. And he said, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. That idea oh. of like putting into action the prayers of our heart. And again, obviously, sometimes we can go way out in front where God is saying, you need to chill. You need, you need to be still and wait upon the Lord. I'm not saying that's often the case, at least in my life. I tend to jump to action, to fixing, to movement too quickly and I could really benefit from a lot more like reflection and contemplation. But I think the, 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 the same can be true in the other direction where sometimes we just right. sort of idly sit back and we're like, God, you, re- you should really do something about this. I, get, I think it was right. Francis Chan who was, I think it was in crazy love. He was quoting somebody else who was, who said to God, when I asked God, why are there poor people in the world? God responded, I was going to ask you the same question. You know, this, <laughs> this participatory, we have a role here in the world. And I think, uh, I think that's an important thing to remember. Absolutely. So I, I thought it was an interesting quote. We would love to know what you think about it. This Chris Cuomo quote uh, from his CNN show. You can find it on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today. Another hour still to go. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkin here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss another sad weekend of violence in the city of Chicago, uh, and then multi-generations within a church. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you joining us today. Uh, as a reminder, if you want to listen to any of our old interviews, like from earlier today with Sky Jatani, uh, or any that we've been doing over the past couple months, you can find those a couple different places. You can find those on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find them on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find them online at 1160hope.com. And as always, our podcast. Uh, find our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe. Oh, I, that's a tough word for me to say there. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we do. That does help us. We are grateful for those of you who listen. 
to the podcast. Sometimes some weird words get me, man. Subscribe. I didn't expect that to be the one today. I don't think anyone did, Brian. <laughs> Usually I'm great with subscribe. <laughs> uh, one of the hard conversations, and we felt like we did this last summer, but certainly now, is with all that's going on in our world, when the summer months hit in Chicago, it tends to sadly be a time uh, of great violence. And that was also the case this past weekend. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, what I do know from this article from the Chicago Tribune, we're actually going to talk to the author of this article tomorrow. Um, but there was a lot of kids that were killed uh, in the last week, two weeks, month. And uh, man, every death is seems needless and senseless. But when you read about a seven-year-old girl or a nine-year-old girl, uh, before we get to, people always want to jump to the politics of it and to the answers of it, all of which are important, but we just really need to be sad and lament uh, the violence that took the lives of some kids this weekend and just acknowledge how heartbreaking that is. Yeah, I totally agree. And so uh, this article, um, discusses specifically uh, the life, uh, the tragedy around Natalia Wallace, a seven-year-old who was killed on Saturday. Uh, and then later on, uh, it talks about a 14-year-old boy who was also killed, and then a 20-month-old boy who died in his car seat. Uh, and it says this, the author says, because this is Chicago, their deaths, their deaths are seized upon and woven into a political narrative while their families are left to process the shock and the horror. I wince when I hear people say, where's the outrage? It's right there in a mother's broken heart, mm. in a sibling shattered world, in a first grade teacher's words. She would type in a chat box, I love you. The author says, I'm afraid that bone deep grief and heartbreak too often get papered over and left out of the public discourse. I think they belong at the center of it. I find that to be a really powerful uh, paragraph. I just, I don't even know what the question I have for you, Ian, other than just reflect upon uh, what the author wrote there about these uh, senseless killings. I mean, I cannot even spiritually, cognitively, emotionally begin to understand, not, not even in the slightest. And I, the thing that struck me about the part that you read, because I do hear or read a lot, the where's the outrage. And that's typically... Yeah for better for worse, trying to make a point, right? Like, oh, everyone was freaking out about this thing. Where's the outrage about that thing? Which I do take some issues with because kind of what we're saying is that every, every act of evil and violence demands to have the same level of social media response. I don't know. I I mean, Mm -hmm. I think social media has influence and it in some ways is like a power to wield well and can cause great good and great harm. But to just simply to use that as sort of a gotcha or a mic drop, like, well, that thing over there is incredible because there hasn't also been outrage about this thing over here. Kind of what I think she's getting at is there is outrage. And just because it isn't showing up on your timeline or in your feed doesn't mean that there aren't still a lot of people heartbroken or lamenting or grieving and working towards solutions. The problem where I think a lot of this really ends up landing, unfortunately, is that we don't seem to agree necessarily on what those solutions are. However, though, we we did that article from David French the other day was talking about how the right perceives the left and how the left perceives the right, particularly around issues like immigration and gun violence or gun control. And 
it does seem like in a lot of ways we're more unified in those topics than we might otherwise think because of how much politics and social media tends to sort of divide us. In fact, that was another one of the graphs that like the higher intake of news and social media usage you have, the bigger your perception gap of the other. And that to me is a, is a really strong correlation. So there, there is, yeah, I'm like, I'm reading right now, 80 people shot, 15 of them killed in July 4th weekend. That those, hmm. those numbers are so heartbreaking and so tragic. And I, I mostly agree with you. It should cause us to grieve, but I also think yeah, action is also needed and not mm-hmm. like action a year from now. Like I think sometimes we can use grief as a way to keep us from action. Like, Hey, this is just time to lament, which we absolutely need. And I've even written things to that end, but to not let that keep us though from finding out smart strategic ways for us to actually to improve here because we have to, and it needs to break our heart and it should move us to action. Absolutely. Absolutely. She, the author, Heidi Stevens, who we think uh, we're hoping will be on our show tomorrow to talk more about this. Uh, She wrote at the Chicago Tribune, I keep thinking of the words of Darlene Hightower, Rush University Medical Center's vice president for community health equity. When we spoke recently about creating a healthier Chicago, Darlene said, there are so many community based organizations doing incredible work. She said, pick one volunteer or write a check or do both. She said, my block, my hood, my city just announced it's awarding $50,000 in peace grants to individuals and organizations who pledge to find creative solutions to reduce uh, Chicago's gun violence. This is the grief in action that can be healing, uh, Consett told me. The other choice is despair and ultimately resignation. I do not choose this. And uh, she ends her article, none of us should. The work of putting grief into action should never rest solely on the shoulders of the grieving. And uh, that, for those of us, like, again, it's always so weird when you read these stories because you know, we live, uh, I live in Downers Grove, which, you know, under an hour to the city. Yet it feels like uh, when I read stories like this, it feels like, you know, a million miles away. And I like how this ends by saying, hey, there's things you can do. Like, don't just Facebook about it or tweet about it, like you said, but there are things you can do. You can volunteer, you can write a check, you can do both. And I think that for those of us who don't live in the city, I think that's a great call instead of just becoming numb to the numbers or that's a city problem or whatever else go as churches and as individuals. Maybe there are some things we can do rather than throw up our hands and go, I can't do anything about this. Well, and I would encourage people to not look away like that's a not look away when we see videos, not look away when articles scroll across our feed. Like I'm reading another one right now that's that's describing, you know, that she was just simply playing on the sidewalk and it's the dad describing how much she loved to kind of dance and play and saying to see my daughter on the table with a gunshot wound to the forehead, that will change somebody's life. Like you just read that and you think, I mean, that makes me want to cry. Like as a, as a dad, as a, as a human, like I can't ever imagine even having to conceive of that ever possibly being my reality. It's part of what you were saying about feeling like a million miles away. That's not a thing that we, really ever fear just walking around our neighborhood and that should not only grieve us that should convict us and stir us and that like you're saying there's there's plenty of things to start doing right now yep and so we wanted to start this hour with this article and because again it's a hard discussion to have but it's something 
uh, that we need to have right in front of us. As Ian put it so well, don't look away and to consider it and to uh, be prayerful, but also think about what can I do uh, to be part of the solution. Well, uh, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Joanne Brada. She is the executive director for an organization called Hopeful Beginnings. Joanne's going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined by phone here by Joanne Brada. Joanne has been the executive director with Hopeful Beginnings for eight years. Uh, she's a registered nurse uh, with a bachelor and master's degree, plus a high school teacher and counselor. It says she's not only worked in hospitals, clinics, schools, but has devoted her professional career to care for pregnant and parenting women. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joanne. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep. Jermaine, could you tell us uh, a little more about Hopeful Beginnings and the work that you do? Absolutely. Hopeful Beginnings, um, when I started there, was basically an adoption agency, and that's just what we did. And I had to cause a little trouble and then start <laughs> some different programming. And one of them was um, District 214's Teen Parenting Program. So we are contracted with them to take care of all teens that have unplanned pregnancies. And we, through our programming, we've increased graduation rates, et cetera. We also have added on to um, more counseling. We do postpartum depression counseling, grief and loss over a pregnancy that has been lost, and adjustment to motherhood. So, you know, we really do a lot of different types of counseling in addition to options counseling for an unplanned pregnancy. Hmm. I'm curious, Joanne, what, what is it that happens? What have you seen when a woman realizes that she has an unplanned pregnancy? There's so much fear. There's so much anxiety. She doesn't know where to turn. And that's why we try to get the word out so that if she talks with one of our social workers, she'll be able to kind of sort things through and set up meetings so she can determine what it is she wants to do. We help empower these women because right at that point, they are not themselves. They're not going to make a good decision. Um, they need someone to lean on, someone to mentor them. And it's really a wonderful thing to watch them emerge with, with, a, you know, with their option of what they want. Mm-hmm. You used the word empowered there too. Something I didn't really realize until I became a dad myself was how, how common it was for women to struggle with some degree of depression, either during or often after the pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit more about what, what, what's going on there? How do you guys come alongside to, to help in those ways? We're very fortunate in that we have a wonderful network of physicians and hospitals that know that we do um, pregnancy and postpartum depression counseling. So we will get referrals from them. We'll get referrals from word of mouth of people that we've worked with. But there is definitely a hormonal imbalance that happens that affects the woman and she becomes anxious, not herself again, very depressed. And the counseling truly, truly helps. All of our services are free. So we're able to help her get back on the road to normalcy. 
And we feel that when she's well, then her, the rest of her family gets well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about people who lose a pregnancy or lose a baby. I know my wife and I, unfortunately, dealt with that early in our marriage. And oh. uh, it can be so traumatic. And I'm wondering, what do you guys do to help a woman that has either lost a pregnancy or even lost a baby? Yeah, it's it's extremely traumatic. And I'm sorry for you and your, your wife's oh, loss you. as well. Um, but we go through counseling and it's grief counseling. And there is, there's a series of different stages, as you know, that you do go through and you go back and forth with them. But again, it's a long journey and there's no telling on when it's going to end, when you're going to feel better. And that's why we stay with the woman for as long as it takes. If she wants to invite her husband in for counseling as well, because it takes two you know, we're, we're an open door. So it really does. It's very, very effective. Um, and we do take people after they're finished counseling, just to kind of do a checkup, just like you do when you go back to the doctor. Yeah. Right. One of the things that Brian and I share in common is we're both pastors. Now we both started, uh, as youth pastors. And I know that teen pregnancy has been a conversation that, pastors and youth pastors and parents have been grappling with for a long time. I'd love to know, how, how do you come alongside teens who are kind of trying to navigate these tumultuous waters? And maybe what encouragement or hope would you give to someone listening right now who knows a teen or even is a teen that's trying to figure out what to do? Well, first and foremost, um, you know, they're going through so many changes as it is, and then you add pregnancy on and, and it gets a little bit wild. And so, what I would say is reach out to an agency like us that can help you, that can help talk with you, really more importantly, listen to you in terms of what situation that you're in, what school are you going to, you know, to get some encouragement to um, go back to school in the fall. It's a tough time and, and there needs to be, you know, decisions made as well. How is your home life? What's happening with you? So, you know, we are on and we're available to talk with kids, with women 24-7. And with an unplanned pregnancy, there will always be someone picking up the phone and connecting you with a social worker. All of our counselors are social workers. Wow. How has COVID-19 changed everything? How do you counsel people in the, in the midst of COVID-19? Well, it's an interesting transition that we went through because we only saw people face to face and, you know, they would come into the office and we would counsel them or we would go out to a woman with unplanned pregnancy. So in steps COVID, mm -hmm. it so happened that I was researching and taking a look at um, remote counseling and that is mm -hmm. through Zoom, through FaceTime, et cetera. So uh, the girls, the, the staff was like, I don't know about this. I said, oh, I think we could do this. <laughs> and so I remember that last Friday that we all worked at the office and I said, okay, you guys, we have to go and work out of our homes. So get your phones ready, learn how to do Zoom this weekend with me and right. we're going to start. And so all of our counseling has been done remotely and it's taken away a great big barrier hmm. that women had such as transportation and time. Right, so, right. And we can serve more people. We can 
serve women in Naperville uh, that, you know, we're located in Palatine. We can mm-hmm. serve uh, women that are in Chicagoland and all through the state of Illinois. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting. It's uh, it's going great guns, and people are so appreciative um, of being able to be with a counselor. I think seeing her face is a big deal. I don't really like phone calls because I don't think that you can pick up the body language hmm. of someone who's hurting. You really need to see their face, their eyes, and um, and they need to see yours as well. So right. we've been doing all of our counseling in that way. So real quick, with like the 30 seconds or so that we have left, how, how can people find out more? How can they get in touch with you? What would, what would be someone's next step? Sure. Um, they can call us at 847-870-8181, or they can go online and go to freecounseling.com to access our website, Hopeful Beginnings of St. Mary's, um, and find out more about it. But we would love to talk to anyone in the situations that we've discussed today. Joanne, we really appreciate that. You've been listening to Joanne Bradish. Bradish she's the Executive Director with Hopeful Beginnings. Joanne, Joanne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. glad to have you joining us today you can find us on facebook the common good radio show uh you can find us on twitter at common good talk you can find us online 1160hope.com and our podcast you can find it wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate and review And uh, we are grateful for those of you who do listen to the podcast. Ed Stetzer wrote yet another article at Christianity Today. We're actually hoping to have Ed on later this week. Uh, But Ed wrote an article called The Generations Present in Your Church. Uh, But before we discuss this uh, topic about generations in our church, Ian is going to tell us a little bit more about Thrivent. I'm going to tell you something that generations need to learn about Thrivent com. Thriven.com is where you could head right now. Thriven.com slash careers. If you're looking for a career change of some kind, I'm a Thriven member. I've loved working with them. I've loved partnering with them. They've helped us post or host different uh, webinars, different events. They've done a lot of good in the city. If you want to check out their action teams, by the way, those are super impressive. They're a Fortune 500 company. They've been around for a century. So if you're looking for a career change, I would ta- I would highly recommend checking out Thriven.com slash careers plus liking their Facebook page because they've been putting out a whole bunch of really great content there as well. Well, great. Uh, At Christianity Today, as we said, Ed Stetzer, this is part five where he's going through the various generations that you will find within your church. But I found this one particularly interesting on Gen Z. Let me read some of it. He says, uh, today we have, he just talked about the greatest generation. He said, today we have the newest generation. They are often called Gen Z, though some call them by other names. This generation born from 1997 and forward, is now entering adulthood. They stepped into a very divided world politically. Barack Obama was elected as president and Donald Trump followed him. That there's a pretty shocking contrast between the two is an understatement. Uh, He says, I should add that it is hard to have a cross-generational conversation and not feel the angst that younger evangelicals are often feeling about older evangelical support of the current administration. It doesn't mean that they have abandoned all that the older generations cherish, but it does mean that they are uncomfortable and wonder how things got to be the way they are. So that's how he introduces Gen Z, 1997, 
uh, and beyond. I'm wondering, Ian, uh, as somebody who, uh, well, I'm just wondering, do you think it's an accurate description of that generation? I want to know what you were about to say as someone who, <laughs> what? I, I lost my, you know, it was kind of like as someone who's interested in the various generations within a church, but I'm like, that sounds weird. <laughs> oh, phew, good thing but you didn't I say that. <laughs> good thing. Man, disaster averted, Brian. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you called yeah, it. You wanted to know. That's true. Touche. I, I mean, I think it's not really a hot take to say that they've stepped into a very divided world politically. I think that's really true. And maybe it's worth. I think it actually is really worth highlighting how different things are politically now than they were for like you or I when we were 17. And that doesn't right. feel that long ago, to be honest. I know that it kind of was. But like to think back when I was, you know, a senior in high school, there was probably a lot that I was just ignorant to, to be honest. There's probably a whole lot more division and backbiting. But there wasn't Facebook. You know what I mean? There wasn't tweets and retweets and viral videos or any of that, which is weird to say that that is some of right. what's made the landscape so divided politically. Cause I feel like when all those things were really kind of coming to the forefront, there's a lot of cat videos and people doing <laughs> stunts by jumping off of roofs, like, you know, ha ha ha, this is entertaining. Like just to, to see how much of our actual like political DNA has been affected by media and social media is, is pretty interesting. It's something that I, I think Stetzer has, a pretty um, prolific finger on the pulse of. Yeah. In fact, uh, as you said, the next part of the article is just entitled social media. He says there are many contributing factors that give Gen Z the unsettledness they have about our world beyond political divisions. Social media plays a big role more than any other generation. It's a different world. And parents of Gen Z are grappling with many issues they didn't have to face uh, when they were younger. This concept of he goes on to talk about how some people, some of the biggest uh, you know, people we know in the tech world don't let their kids uh, have just all sorts of the technology out there and that that should uh, worry us. Mark Anderson, former editor of Wired, compared kids' addiction to screens to that of crack cocaine. He has a list yeah. of strict rules for his own children uh, regarding phones. And we've talked a lot about this, but it, you can't undersell how much technology and social media has um uh, has formed this generation because like you said, they've never been without it. Like I can look back at a day where, Oh man, like we still had to read the newspaper or still had to do this. Right. And uh, now I'm to, to think that my kids are even kids older than that, all the way back to Gen Z have never been without social media or technology. That's, that's really uh, an important fact because that has in many ways really formed who they are. Well, it's forming who we are too, though. I don't think it's fair to say now it is. Yeah. Yeah, technology is forming the, these youngsters. Um, we've read other articles in the last year and a half that talk about like the vast majority of fake news, fake news articles that are shared online are not coming from high school students, right? They're coming from That's right. people in their fifties and sixties. So there certainly is, I think, another layer to this because I think it's easy, and it has been easy for decades to point to younger generations and how they're being shaped by the new shiny technology. I feel like right now is a unique moment where maybe all of us collectively are being formed to a higher degree than we've seen in the past, where like when you and I were in high school, my, I don't know about your dad. My dad wasn't interested in video games. He wasn't being formed by video games in the way right. that I was because I got a Nintendo and it was like this really cool hip thing that all my friends are doing. We're in a weird place now where like 17-year-olds and 37-year-olds and 57-year-olds are all being formed and they're probably on different websites using different apps, but like this 
device in our pocket, right? This constant access to something that is a pretty interesting kind of through line between the generations of like one of the leading things that I think is forming us. Yeah, we, you mentioned Nintendo, and I just immediately had the theme to Tecmo Bowl and to Super Mario Brothers simultaneously, basically going in my head. Uh, Wait, did you, so say, did you say Mario? Is that what you said? Oh, yeah, I get my – this is a East Coast thing. I call it Super Mario Brothers. Yep. My <laughs> wife, she called me out on this a long time ago. Oh, man, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you said that. She's going to laugh hard that you just picked up on that. <laughs> I like it. I kind of wish that I said it like that. Super oh, Mario Brothers. Yeah. I always say Super Mario Brothers. Uh, so Stetzer, we'll close with this. Stetzer asked the question, and he asked this in all of these articles, how do we work together uh, as pastors, right? Gen Zs are not generally the pastors of most churches, right? They might be on staff, but they're not generally leading. But what is it that this Gen Z generation I don't want to be put it this way, but I will has to offer like how, why should we be um, uh, listening? Even though, you know, a lot of us who are older now are like, Oh, they're just the young ones. But Gen Z has a ton to offer, especially as a pastor. Uh, how are ways that it becomes important? What are good ways for us to work together across the generations like this? Are you asking me this? Or are you asking Ed Stetzer this? I'm asking you this. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, there probably are some things that we can learn from what we've, how we've lived this out in decades past. One, I think younger people in particular in any church organization bring a lot of energy that the rest of us don't have Two, right. they're, they ha they're not as risk averse. Like they're willing to try new things. They're willing to like mm. push the envelope a little bit. They're willing to kind of challenge systems and norms that may be dated or aren't functioning the way that we need them to. They can also see with a fresh set of lenses, you know, like that, terrible couch in your basement that you've had for 40 years uh, you don't yeah. see it anymore but if like a friend comes over they're like oh my gosh what's up with that couch a fresh set of eyes can kind of help illuminate like hey why do we do it this way or why has that not been taken care of i just think there's a lot there i also think and this is part of what you know for me helped me fall in love with youth ministry in the first place it feels like and this is sort of in line with what sky was talking about i feel like they take jesus seriously sometimes in ways that mm -hmm. like you know, once you have a mortgage and a 401k, you don't necessarily as much. That's right. Like, like again, like Sky was saying, the fear of like, I don't want to rock the boat or upset these people or mess, you know, my nest egg. Like there's just a, a readiness. I think like, no, let's go. Let's love people. Let's if Jesus was serious, let's go live this out. You can find this article from Ed Stetzer at Christianity Today at our Facebook page entitled The Generations Present in Your Church. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show. Uh, with a really interesting tweet. We're going to uh, look at this tweet from a guy by the name of John Mark McMillan. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for you. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of peaked with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to, to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no 
strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. back to the common good on AM 1160 hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins my name is Brian Fromm thanks for joining us today uh, hopefully you're having a good Tuesday afternoon uh, as we close the show uh, Ian you uh, put out a not put out you you showed us a tweet from somebody by the name of John Mark McMillan uh, that I found really kind of poignant and uh, and interesting so why don't you read this tweet for us yeah, I'd asked you off air if you knew who it was. I was surprised that you'd never heard of him. He wrote the song How He Loves Us. Um, oh, for real? I know the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a songwriter. He's a worship leader. Okay. He's um he's a really really like he just seems like a thoughtful leader. He's 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 a good follow on Twitter at the very least. He wrote this uh when was this? I guess this was yesterday, July 6th. And it was just a screenshot I think from like his notes app and it just says, yeah. Goodbye. Dear Internet friends, I'm taking a break for a few weeks to pursue a little more actuality. I've enjoyed these last months sharing my videos and writings with you. I hope you know I put a lot of my heart into them. It felt important, needed. It felt purposeful, not just building an audience, which is a temptation for any artist, but connecting and encouraging real human beings in real dark and anxious times. The response was overwhelmingly positive. You guys made me feel loved. I can't even begin to share with you countless encouraging DMs and messages that I received. You kept me going. I knew I was making a difference and truly felt like I was being helpful in a time of crisis. As you can tell, uh, it was also helpful and healing for me. I found a purpose in the moment. My first new record in three years came out in February, and soon afterward I realized that tour and all of our plans were, quote, on the rocks. I could have been tempted to feel like the last two years of hard work was for nothing, but instead I did my best to serve, to share, and to connect. It felt so good. I loved every minute of it. Well, almost every minute of it. <laughs> the last several weeks, things have grown more toxic than normal, and to be honest, I feel like my voice isn't really needed right now. Imagine that. <laughs> I feel a temptation to do and say things that would only add to the toxicity of the moment. So I'm taking a break. Which is totally fine because there's a lot of real world out there and I'm dying to be a part of it. Songs, new music, maybe a book and real life, actual human beings, the kind who can punch you in the actual face if you talk <laughs> to them the way that you talk on the Internet and vice versa. Uh, look, this is probably just for a few weeks, so don't be sad. I'll be back when I feel like I have something to say that deserves uh, to be elevated above the white noise until then. Keep dreaming and remember that all outward realities flow from an inward place. Don't let anyone tell you that your God-born dreams aren't the most powerful force in the universe. I love you guys. I actually do. Hmm. The end. So you mentioned, Brian, this is something that I put sort of in my rundown, my link yep. dump that we share. Why did yep. this uh, stand out to you? Especially not even knowing who he was. Like what about right. this to you kind of resonated? Uh, you, if you've listened to the show at all, if people have listened over the last couple of weeks, you know, both of us have, have expressed, but I've certainly expressed just a lot of angst towards social media, that it doesn't yeah. feel like it is playing a real productive role in my life. It's causing more heartache than joy. Mm. Uh, and, and I really think he, you and I say this all the time about, we read people who put things to words that we're feeling much better than we can. 
Yeah. Uh, and I really feel like he put these to words right here, mm. uh, especially why he's getting off of social media. Right. He says, uh, you know, it's uh, I feel like my voice isn't really needed. I feel a temptation to do and say things that would only add to the toxicity of the moment. And so I'm taking a break. And even the the funny line he uses about, you know, saying things to people who can actually punch you in the face that right. you would never say. I'm like, I feel like there's a lot of people in my life who say things online that I don't think they would say in person. And that's really gotten me down in the last couple of weeks, mm. just around this, just not in general, but just around social media. And uh, I've taken some kind of pseudo breaks from it, but I, I do respect someone like him uh, who's in the public eye just saying, you know what, I need a break. I'm getting away and I'm not doing it for some big stand. I just need a break from my own soul and uh, kind of giving the reasoning why, because uh, knowing that it would probably confuse some people. And so that's kind of why I want to end the show specifically with this, because just even the word he uses, actuality, uh, is not a word I thought of, but like pursue actual, pursue things that are real and actual. And I think he's saying, uh, I don't think that, you know, social media is real, people's real views, but there's something not actual about it, he's saying. And so anyway... Uh, I when I clicked on uh, you put this link up and when I clicked on it and read it, I really was kind of moved by it, but also challenged by it going. Yeah, man, that's that's really how I've been feeling, I would say, as I peruse Facebook and Twitter over the last month, which I and I appreciate to him kind of owning the fact that he's feeling tempted to say stuff that he knows wouldn't be helpful. You know, a lot of times mm -hmm. the confession here or someone saying, hey, I'm taking a break for a while. It sort of stops at the. I need some margin. I need some space, which is great. Right. That's wonderful to recognize that in you. I think also this is, and maybe we don't have time to get into it now. This is also another strong case for why we need like daily and weekly rhythms where we step away from mm. these things. Not that, you know, like a three week or three month hiatus from them isn't also wonderful. But I think sometimes because we don't have like daily and weekly rhythms, we end up getting to the point where we just feel like, I'm going to implode if I don't turn this thing off or if I don't step right. away for a second, uh, which that might still happen. But his willingness to say not only does it feel like this is crushing in on me and I don't want to continue to allow this to affect me. He's also owning the fact that these this pressure or the toxicity is beginning to affect me in a way where I'm now concerned that I might start adding to the noise things that also aren't helpful. That takes a real deep sense of self-awareness, not just to make this decision to protect himself, but to also recognize, man, if I keep getting formed like this by this thing or by this platform, I'm going to begin to be part of the problem. And I'll probably yeah. say things or do things that I don't want to say or do. I don't want to be a part of that noise. And uh, I think that shows, not to overplay it, that shows a real pastoral heart to know that like, yeah. hey, I think this is better for all of us. For me just to step away for a little bit and he reminds him he's like that it's not gonna be forever don't you know don't don't worry um but i yeah I, I appreciated his his poise here and it and it wasn't filled with any like specific finger pointing no camp or that team and how dare you guys i'm out you know it just it felt really raw and really honest and uh yeah i really applaud him for it i love this line he says uh because there's a quote, there's a lot of quote, real world out there that I'm dying to be a part of. He's acknowledging too that um, social media in some way has taken away not just his ability to enjoy the real world or just taken a lot of his time, but probably also a lot of his energy and focus. And like, yeah. he's going, wait, there, there, there's a lot of good out there. And he goes on to say songs, new music, maybe a book and real life, actual human beings. 
Uh, he's just saying, like, I think a lot of us have felt at times, there's something better out there than the, than the snark that can come with social media. And we've said a million times, it's not all snark. It's not all bad. There's lots of great things about social media. Uh, but I was challenged by this. I think, uh, I, I think this was really well put, well reasoned, and, uh, and certainly worth thinking about. So we'll put that up on our Facebook page. Wanted to put it out there just to have you give some thoughts to your own views of social media and um, just kind of your perspective and what's it doing to your own soul? Because ultimately, that's the question each of us need to ask ourselves. Again, we'll put that up on our Facebook page. Well, we're done for another day. We are glad that you joined us today. Hope you have a great rest of your Tuesday evening. Join us again tomorrow from four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.